Well, good morning, church. All right. It is my honor, my pleasure to be here to tell you my personal testimony today. Um, I hope it'll be as good as the first service. That's the goal. Uh, or maybe even better. This is round two. So, all right. Um, I uh, often say sometimes, you know, you, you should really look at my notes. They're pretty vague. And I uh, love allowing God to work through my stories and work through my testimony and speak the right words for whoever I'm talking to. God has an incredible way of coming to us exactly the way we need him to in exactly the right time, in the exact medium, the exact form that we need to see him. And so sometimes I, I leave my notes formless as well. So we'll see how it goes. And uh, let's trust in God. I love it. I was uh, a young middle school student when we had an evangelist come in and uh, speak to us. And his testimony was on the grace of God. The idea that there's no, there's nothing, no sin, no, no thing, no, no evil that you could do, no hole so deep, no darkness so blinding that God can't reach you. If you ask him into your heart, if you ask him to be there for you. And so he got up and he began his testimony and he talked about drugs and he talked about gangs and he talked about girls and he talked about sin and he talked about all the things that he had done. And he went on and on describing how low his life had gotten and how far away, how separated he was from God and how he was in such a dark place that he thought, God could never reach me this far down. So for 25 minutes, he talked about sin. And then he said, and then I found God, and the Lord saved my life. Amen. Thank you very much. And I thought, whoa, you just glorified sin for 25 minutes. And then that was, that was your God piece. I said, that, that, that actually makes me want to go out and try some of this stuff. You know, like... Sounds kind of good. Yeah, I'm young, influenced middle school child I was. Um, but in that, I, uh, I had to question who I was. Let's get that first slide up there, please. So we come to 1 Peter 3.15. This is the verse that's, that's uh, really, really given credit for being the first place that apologetics arises in the Bible, where Peter writes down and calls all Christians to have an answer, to be able to, to answer a question of your faith. And he says, but sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. First, right there, God has to be center. God has to be in your heart. Sanctify God. Sanctify Christ as your Lord in your heart. And always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason concerning the hope that is in you. 
Be ready to answer someone when they say, what makes you different? What's this hope? Who's this Jesus fellow? Yet with humility and fear, without boasting, without arrogance, with humility to our, to our fellow believers, non-believers, whoever it is that's asking you these questions, come with reverence, come with humility, just as Jesus did. And fear, fear of God, reverence, to the Lord. Next slide. So we come with the Greek apologia logos, which comes to apologetics and its definition, uh, reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or a religious doctrine. Great definition. I don't understand it. So I came up with my own definition based on 1 Peter 3.15, kind of what that comes down to me. And I had them highlighted on there. It's give an answer and a reason. Give an answer for your reason concerning hope. What is your why? What's your why? Why do you believe the way you believe? And apologetics has been given this, this broad theological, big Nazarene, big Christian word that sometimes gets lost in, well, we need to study and learn and, and have all these, all these arguments and have all these proofs and be able to show that Jesus uh, fulfilled 113, 120 different prophecies in the Old Testament and we have to be able to explain to someone how the Trinity works and we need to do all this. And true, that is apologetics and if you're going to get into a theological debate, you should probably know some of those things. But Peter calls each and every one of us to have an answer, to have a why, to have our own personal apologetics, to have our answer. What's your why? And so, I had to ask myself, in the face of this grace gospel evangelist who glorified sin and then threw this out there, I said, well, what's my why? Where, what would I say if someone said, what's your thing? And it very simply came down to, because my mom said so. I was born and raised in the church. I accepted Jesus as my personal savior as a young kid. I was raised in the church. I didn't know life. I didn't know life without God in my and so I, I, I struggled with that. And I said, all right, well, you know, he's got something to compare it to. He's got a story. He's got a testimony of something. And I, what do I have? What's my why? I don't have anything. So I prayed. I prayed in middle school. And I said, God, give me a testimony. Give me something powerful. Give me something that when people see me and, 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 and talk to me, people will, will come and ask me, will, will stop me places and say, what is going on here? What's in your heart? What's your testimony? What makes you so different? And I, I prayed that very earnest. I wanted a testimony that I could bring to people that would change lives and point to God in everything I did. And so let's fast forward a time. And I served uh, in the Marine Corps for 10 years. I was a combat engineer. And my job sent me lots of different places all over the world. Um, I served in Iraq, 
and the Philippines and in Japan. And I found myself serving in uh, Afghanistan. And one of my uh, biggest jobs that I have as a combat engineer um, really falls into two categories. Stay. Sorry. I don't really need these. It just helps so I don't get lost. And then you guys would get lost. And then it would be no good because I can ramble. I once talked for like four hours. People kept asking me questions. I don't know if you guys want that. Take this. Okay. Um, so as a Marine, as a combat engineer, I have two major things that, that, that I did. Mobility and counter-mobility. That's getting us and troops and, and, and everything we needed to complete our mission to where we want to go. And keeping the enemy away and back from where we're stationed. Where we're stationed. Counter-mobility, mobility. And so what that meant for me in Afghanistan was using a metal detector and leading patrols daily, sometimes twice a day, um, and finding IEDs and finding weapons caches and, and generally just making sure that wherever I walked, the Marines behind me doing the mission could walk and be safe. And so we kind of played this game with the, the, the Taliban. And uh, we were in the Sangin Valley in Afghanistan is kind of commonly known as the birthplace of the Taliban denomination. And so they really wanted to hold tight to that, to that area. That was, they considered that their land. That was their, their birthplace. That's where they started. And, and you can't take that away from me. And this was one of those, those periods of time where um, we got hurt as, as America, as Marines. We got hurt pretty bad. This is between 2010 and 2012 during one of these, one of these advances uh, in Afghanistan. It was, it was tough. It was a tough time for us in general, America, Merck. But the enemy was clever. And they knew they couldn't go toe-to-toe with us. And so they used improvised explosive devices. They put them all over the place. They put them in trees, in walls, in the ground. Anywhere they thought we might be, they would put them there. And anywhere we didn't have eyes on all the time, they would just go just past that and put it in. And the true face of terrorism, most likely it wasn't even them that put it in. It was, it was the, 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 the extremists or who, whoever we were really fighting would go into someone's houses, your house, your house. And they'd grab your family and they'd shove a gun in their face and say, go dig a hole. Go call this phone number when you, when you see the Marines. Go take what's in this wheelbarrow and bury it. Put it in that hole that we made. Hardly ever was it them directly. And that's, that's day-to-day terrorism. That's something that, that I learned in Iraq but never would have understood had I not seen it. A day-to-day struggle of people coming in, forcing you to do something you don't want to do. And it disgusts me. And that's what I was there fighting. And that's side note one. On April 18th, 2011, I was leading a a patrol um, with my metal detector in the ground going along. And we went to a a small village area um, that we had 
previously been to and, and saw that there was intelligence to be gained. There was people there. There was there was there was stuff going on. And so we set up this this thing called an entry control point, and it's basically taking over a corner that's that's a a general route people would walk on and stopping all traffic, all people, and you're, you're checking them for uh, uh, contraband materials that they might be carrying, asking them for intelligence or, or who they know or what they've seen in the area so that we can further our measure. We're looking maybe for high-value targets that might just happen to walk through there and we can catch them. You know, anything we can do, we take over this corner and we have our presence known and we, we do multiple different things in here. It's called an entry control point. It's a great little tactic that we use. Uh, but before we took over the corner, we took over a building next to it. And we staged our stuff and we got ready for this operation. And one of the things we do in preparation for this entry control point maneuver is putting in what's called guardian angels. Guys with big guns on rooftops. It's a wonderful thing. So if anything happens down low on the corner, we already have the high ground. We already have big guns in place. And if anything goes awry, anything goes bad... We're there, and we're ready. So I walked up on top of the, the roof with uh, two gun teams. There's four guys. And I placed one gun team facing one direction, one gun team facing the other direction. And they're in place, and they're all good. And I started walking back across the roof, the cleared path that we had all just walked on. And I must have been inches off of where we all just walked on that rooftop. And I stepped directly on a pressure plate that set off a 20-pound improvised explosive device and immediately sent me flying into the air. My body went into shock. My legs were gone immediately. Shrapnel was tearing through my body. And I was flying up into the air. And the first thought I had was... How dare somebody walk on an uncleared path that I haven't cleared yet? They were obviously somewhere they weren't supposed to be. Not thinking it was me. Not even, that didn't even go through my head yet. And your brain, working a little bit like a computer, if there's too much information coming in all at once, it kind of slows down. And so I call this a five-minute flight because it, it all happened really flat, fast. Time didn't change for anyone else. But for me, everything slowed down as my body tried to process everything going on right now. And I remember watching the roof of the building go by as I fell through the hole in the roof that the bomb had just made. And I thought, okay, I just went up and straight down. Well, okay. It was me. It was me. I stepped on the bomb. I just went straight up, straight back down, and I landed in the room below on the rubble that used to be the roof. And in this room filled with dust and dirt, explosive residue and smoke and everything else, more things, more awareness. Time started speeding up. Things started catching up to me, and I realized that a bomb of this size and from any other perspective, there was a huge explosion and I was gone. This bomb had it been in the earth. The way physics work. I'm going I'm to see if you guys follow me. The earth is heavier than me. Do we agree? I mean, okay. Because of that, all the explosive would have gone up. 
all the power of that entire bomb would have gone up because the earth is bigger than I am, and I would have been gone. I would have been dead immediately. And we have a term for it. It's not nice, and it's sad that we even have this term, but we call it pink mist. You're gone. There's nothing to look for. But because I was on the roof of a building, I was bigger, stronger, and, 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 and heavier than the force, what was underneath that explosive. So although it took my legs and some fingers and shrapnel and everything else, I was still alive. But from any other perspective around me, there was a big explosion and then I was gone. So now here I am sitting on the rubble that used to be the roof in this room filled with smoke and dirt and debris and explosive residue and I'm bleeding out and there's all this stuff going on and I need saved and I'm alive and nobody knows I'm here and so I call out in the dark. I'm alive! I'm in here, come find me. There's a parallel to this if you think about it. I'm alive. Come find me. I can't do it on my own. I can't crawl out. So a couple guys heard me, ran in, grabbed me, and pulled me out. And I had an incredible, incredible, amazing team of Marines and an incredible Navy corpsman with me that day that were on it. They were trained. They knew what to do. And my Navy corpsman took two tourniquets on both of my legs. They put a tourniquet on my arm. They started he started patching up all the shrapnel wounds that were in my belly. Five tourniquets. Lots of gauze. Lots of pads. I'm bleeding out everywhere. While that's going on, they're putting a gurney together. While that's going on, they're on the comm. They're on on the communication, calling in the nine line, saying, you know, who I am, what happened to me, where we are, uh, what the marking's going to be, what type of blood type, all the injuries, all this stuff. They're, They're letting the helicopter know so that they can come and get me. While that's going on, there's other guys that have grabbed more metal detectors and they're out in the field. They're clearing an area for the helicopter. All this is happening as soon as they found me. This whole team of people working to save my life. And so they lift me up in this gurney and they take me out of the building that we were in. And they bring me out to the poppy fields and lay me down in a wadi, which is like an irrigation canal, a little ditch. And I'm staring up into the sky and I got the poppies kind of growing up beside me. And my doc comes over and he grabs those tourniquets and he starts tightening them even more. And everything else that's going on, all the shrapnel, the blood, everything else going on, he tightens those down. It felt like they were squeezing my bone. And I looked at him and I said, Doc, that hurts. And he looks at me and he goes... Dude, they're saving your life. And really, look at you. I mean, those hurt? Come on. I said, okay, you're right. I'll suck it up. It's fine. Tourniquet's a tourniquet. And in this conversation, he says, you know, hey, who's got you, man? I've been doing a lot of hard work here. I, I put all these tourniquets on you. I put all the gauze on you. Who's got you, bro? And I go, God's got me. He goes, yeah, okay, all right. Okay, good, all right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, bro, you got me. You got me, man. Thank you. Bottom of my heart, thank you, you got me. 
But that was what was in my head. That was what was in my heart. I'm in God's hands. I didn't know what 10 minutes was going to look like from that moment. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so a helicopter comes in and they lift me up and they throw me in. And it's a... uh, I've been getting the terminology wrong for years and I was just corrected. But it was ran by the British and this very specific flight takes longer to get to the person who's injured. It's not your normal evacuation flight. And I had a, I had a staff NCO, a staff sergeant that was with me there. He was touring the area and checking out how this, how this fight was going that I was doing and why I kept complaining to him that I needed more people and all this. And then I get injured. And really, it was like there's a second blessing on top of this because it changed his whole aspect of war. And I probably saved some lives within my own platoon because he saw me get injured. That's a different story. Side note, too. It's over here. But he was so mad, marching up and down. Where's that helicopter? What's going on? It should be here already. They had to, like, remove him from the situation. They're like, you are stressing us all out. You need to, like, chill. It'll get here as soon as it can. Well, the helicopter that showed up, like I said, it was a special helicopter. They lifted me up. They threw me in. It was ran by the British. I know this because it was an amazing British accent voice that came through this hooded face. And I hadn't heard, like, an in-person female voice for quite a while being in Afghanistan. You don't get to see him. She goes, oh, love. Huh. Yeah. And I asked her, I said, can I sleep now? And she said, oh, love. Yeah, sleep. So I fell asleep. But this helicopter that came in, the reason it took longer was because before they left the ground, they prepared it for me specifically. They had my blood type. They had IVs. They had everything they needed. They had doctors and nurses. They had everything on board to start traumatic surgery on the helicopter. I don't know if I would have survived a regular flight. But when I got thrown on that helicopter, they had everything there ready for me. And they put me into a drug-induced coma, and I fell asleep. And they started their work. They started the blood transfusions. They started the IVs and the fluids. They started work. They started patching me up. They started stopping and, and keeping the blood inside my body that was keeping me alive. And as I was in this drug-induced coma, I started a, a journey. And it started with a dream, like a reoccurring dream, something I'd, I'd had before, I'd felt it before, and I had this dream before, and it says. This, this moment, my, my brain, my subconscious recognized it as, you're really sick. You've had this dream before when you're really sick, and right now you're really sick. And I thought, oh, way to go, subconscious. Yeah, I'm sick. I'm dying right now. Come on, give me some credit. And there's a moment where I, I left the dream. And I came to a place where I was aware. I was in a state of consciousness that was no longer a dream. And I was in a place that was void. It gave me moments to understand and and really come into terms with myself in this form, in this place of void, this place of nothing, 
No up, no down, no light, no dark. No reference, like a gray emptiness. But in this moment, I, could, I, could, I was conscious. And I could control myself. It wasn't a dream. I know it wasn't a dream. And then there was a moment, like opening the back door of a matinee when you forget that the sun is still out and you're suddenly blinded. And like that, like that moment, I was suddenly blinded. And I was in front of, it felt like I was in front of the sun. And I would be vaporized and I'd be cooked away if I wasn't in this spiritual form. And it was huge and it was powerful and it was awesome. And just like that, that moment you walk out the back door of a matinee, it takes a minute for your eyes to kind of focus. And it took a second. It took a couple seconds for my eyes to focus and realize what was really happening. And I realized, and it came into focus, that I was sitting or standing in front of a being of light, a being of power, an awesome presence that I can't describe with all the words that I could come up with. But I knew I was in the presence of God. I knew I was on his throne. And he spoke to me as clear as I'm speaking to you right now, but I didn't hear the words with my ears. It was like he took the words and he balled them up and he placed them right on my heart with all knowledge and all understanding and all context that you can possibly imagine. It was all there, but the words were simple. He said, are you ready? Are you ready? And I knew in that moment that this was judgment. That God was, was going to open up my life and look at everything that I've done. And say, and say, are you worthy? Are you ready? And in front of a being of pure light, of pure energy, of pure power, in front of God... I felt so small. I was so not ready, not worthy. And we can't. None of us can. There's a verse in the Bible that says, every knee will bow, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am God. And in that moment, it's not an option. It's not an option. And I went down. Because I was in the presence of God. I said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Because I'd like to imagine my life like a, like a novel. But in the presence of God, it'd be like a, a two-page comic book. It'd be like a strip on the newspaper, you know? He knows us already. It'd be quick, it'd be simple. Because God already knows. And I'll testify today that you can't stand in front of God and on your own say you're worthy. It's only through Jesus, only through his son, only through a pure sacrifice that we're able to come into the presence of God, washed in the blood of Jesus, and say, judge me. Because Jesus atoned for my sins. But I can't do it on my own. And as soon as I said, no, I'm not ready, I woke up in the hospital. 
whoa. I was alive. I said, no, God woke me up. Here I am. And now what? What's going on, God? What is going on? What does this mean? What have you, What is this? And so I prayed. And I prayed with Sam. I prayed with my parents. I prayed with my in-laws. And God started revealing things to me. One of the things he revealed to me was that prayer. A long time ago, in middle school, when I said, give me a testimony, God said, I answered that prayer. I gave you a vision of me. I gave you a vision of judgment. I gave you a testimony to tell people, it's mine. And I'm going to give it through you so that people know. And this isn't the first time he's done this. He's done it over and over and over. We see it in the Bible all the time. What's my why? God's given us free will. People do evil things. People are sinners. Bad things happen. But I worship a God that works those situations for good, for His good, to glorify Him in situations that are bad, in times that that you think, how can God be in this situation? He works it for His good. Let me give you an example. Here's one. Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, imprisoned, and then elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh and saved all of Egypt and more. And when his brothers came to him in the end, begging him not to retaliate, he simply said, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, the saving of many people alive. God worked that bad situation for good. Here's another one. Daniel. They didn't like his faith in God. They didn't like that his God was different than their God. So they came up with a plan to get him thrown into a lion's den and devoured by wild beasts. And so it was. He was thrown in. And God shut their mouths. And the next day the king came and Daniel was unscathed, untouched. By the lions. A miracle. And the king pulls him out and he makes a decree to the entire nation he ruled. Persian nation. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men will tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? That's the God I worship. So in these times when things are bad, in these times when, when it's darkest and you think, how can God be in this situation? Know that he works things to his good. And there's a pattern. It goes even further than this. I have another example of Jesus. God's only Son, sent here as a living sacrifice, pure and holy for us, to cover my sin, 
and nailed to a cross. Died. But raised again. And he did it to save my life. Did it to save your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him won't perish, won't pass, won't perish. I have everlasting life. That's my why. I worship a God that can take the evil of man and work it to his good for the saving of many lives, for the glory of him. I worship a God that can close the mouths of lions, that can save the people. And there's a pattern to it. I see it over and over in the Bible. I've seen it personally experienced in my life. And this is why my hope, this is my why in Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know that God today, if you want to experience that, or if you're going through a time in your life where it's dark and you wonder, where is God in this? Will you just testify? Will you raise your hand? Amen. Will you just know that God's there? God's there in all of this. Just bow your head and pray with me. Lord God, I believe and I trust in you. Lord God, I want you in my life. I want you to work all things for good in your perfect will. And that doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen. That doesn't mean that I won't sin. But I believe that you sent your Son, perfect and holy, to die on the cross and his sacrifice has washed me clean, has purified my heart. God, I believe you're all powerful. I believe that none can stand against you. I believe that your Holy Spirit dwells amongst us and lives in my heart. It guides me. I love you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for your grace in your perfect and holy name. Amen.